We return after a couple weeks uh, away from this study uh, of the early history of the Christian church. Uh, We have been following, uh, those of you who have been here, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, as he is on his way back uh, to Jerusalem. Remember, for years now, uh, this persecutor of Christians, who had been radically transformed by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, has been traveling around the majority of the known world, and his goal is to proclaim, at great personal cost and hardship to himself, to proclaim the good news of Jesus of Nazareth. That Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, born, crucified, and risen for sinners. And remember, for the Apostle Paul, this was a message not just to the Jews, not just to the nation of Israel, but to those that we would call Gentiles, all of those outside of Jewish ethnicity. Paul was therefore an an equal opportunity offender, we might say. He offended the Greeks with their pantheon of gods. He offended the Jews with their deep-seated traditions and notions. And he said to both of them, come to Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And now Paul's headed to Jerusalem not to retire, as one might think after such uh, a wonderful service around the globe, but he's there, Luke tells us in chapter 20, verse 22, he's there, he's headed there constrained by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, even though he knows, he suspects what awaits him there. And that's where we turn this morning, because today, Paul is going to find out what awaits him in Jerusalem. And we are going to find out, and in the process, God is going to remind us of some wonderful truths that we need to be reminded of again and again. And so listen as I read, this is uh, Acts 21, uh, verses 1 through 36. Again, uh, quite a large passage, uh, but listen as I read God's holy word. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days." And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, and he bound his own feet in his hands, and he said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, 
This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and we said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us, how, bringing us to the house of uh, Nason, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought, them into, brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they had saw the tribune and these soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who, he inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I know that that was a lengthy passage uh, for us uh, to take this morning. I'm trying to find that balance. Not getting too bogged down in this lengthy book, which we have now been in for a couple years uh, when you take into uh, consideration all the breaks uh, that we've had. 
But I really think that we can see this passage as a whole. And I really think that we can see uh, what this teaches us uh, concerning our gospel message. The year is 57 AD. And Paul is on what is commonly known as a coasting vessel. He is headed southeast towards Jerusalem on this vessel that is not doesn't ever go too far from the coast, but continually finds itself in port. This is along the western shore of modern-day Turkey, for those of you who know your geography well. This is a journey that would have taken weeks for Paul on this coasting vessel with all the stops. And it's a journey that is full of emotional goodbyes. Those of you who were here a couple weeks ago, or now maybe a few weeks ago, when the last time we were in this book, remember one of those emotional goodbyes. As Paul called the men of the elders of Ephesians, of Ephesus, excuse me, the Ephesian elders, and exhorted and encouraged them. And we go from that emotional scene to now this. A scene of travel details, a scene of Paul being encouraged, of Paul himself being exhorted, and Paul not taking the advice of those who encouraged and exhorted him. I think like the last time we were in the book of Acts, it is Paul's actions, it is Paul's imitation of Jesus that in turn becomes an imitation for us that we notice here this morning. And so I want to focus on two truths for us to think about and to meditate on as we walk through this passage this morning. And the first one is this. The Gospel demands a willingness to suffer. The Gospel demands a willingness to suffer. Luke is our author. We know that. We've been in this book for a long time. And Luke, in his Gospel, records these words of Jesus in Luke 9.23. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. See, I think the first thing Paul shows us and reminds us of this morning is that this is the kind of life that Jesus calls us to. This is the kind of life that the Gospel calls us to. A life of taking up your cross. And taking up your cross is not comfortable. I certainly don't want to minimize anything that anyone is going through, because I know many of you are wading through some significantly deep and dark waters. But in general, we as a culture, we as a people, we live pretty cush lives. Settled here in the most prosperous and the safest nation on earth during an era of extraordinary comfort and convenience, the experience of our lives in this day and age would be foreign to so many people in so many other places in the world and in so many other parts of history. And as a result, because I'm in here, I mean, I'm living in this culture with you, as a result, ours is an experience, I think, that can gently 
woo us to an unbiblical expectation of what our futures ought to look like. And I'm not immune. We prayed as a church, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. And yet I know how easily the focus of my life can be on my own comfort, on my own happiness. And it's not that those things are bad. It's not that the Lord doesn't want you to be happy or doesn't ever want you to be comfortable. But my expectation is that God always needs to make me happy and comfortable. And so we hear phrases like this, God wants me to be happy and and so therefore He wouldn't want me. He wouldn't want this for me. I've heard this. He wouldn't want me in this marriage. Or more pointedly to our witness in the world, He wouldn't want me to be uncomfortable. He wouldn't want me to take that risk for the sake of the Gospel. You see, the first part of this passage, the first chunk of this passage, is all about whether or not Paul should risk for the sake of the Gospel. And it's not so much a risk for Paul. We might even say it's certainty for Paul. Suffering awaits him. And it's just a matter of will he be willing to follow through. As I said earlier, Paul's headed to Jerusalem because he is constrained by the Spirit. Luke told us that in Acts 20. Paul is determined, even though he knows what awaits him there. But as he's on this journey, as he spends a week in the city of Tyre, and then he spends more time in the city of Caesarea, he is receiving united counsel from those around him to not go. We are told that those in Tyre simply told him, don't go to Jerusalem. And the scene in Caesarea is much more dramatic. The prophet Agabus, who you might remember, probably not, but he was way back, we heard about him way back in chapter 11 of the book of Acts, where he successfully prophesied a coming famine. He comes onto the scene and in in this charade-like fashion takes Paul's belt and binds himself up. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, and that's exactly what Agabus is seeking to show. The Old Testament prophets did this kind of thing before. Isaiah once walked naked in the streets at the request of God. Ezekiel once told, once performed this elaborate street theater in order to display the Lord's coming siege on Jerusalem. And so it wasn't uncommon that a prophet would be so elaborate and so uh, expressive in their display. But as Agabus lay on the floor, entangled, you can just picture him entangled in Paul's belt. Even Luke himself, who's, who's there, even Luke himself in verse 12 joins this chorus of encouragement for Paul not to go. I mean, they're crying. They're pleading, Paul, you could be so useful here. Please don't go. Think of the good you could accomplish. What good are you going to do in prison? What good are you going to do suffering? Surely there is more fruitfulness that awaits you here. 
and all of this godly counsel, Luke tells us something that, that maybe you're thinking, something that is potentially confusing for us. Because he says, not once, but twice, in verse 4 and in verse 11, he says that it was through the Holy Spirit that God's people were telling these things to Paul. So Paul is constrained by the Spirit of God to go to Jerusalem, and through the Spirit, God's people are telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. The Spirit contradicting himself. What's going on here? Well, no, the Spirit of God is not contradicting himself. What I believe is happening here is this. God's people, by the Spirit, are being shown the end. They're being shown Paul's end. Agabus knows, as he's wrapped up in Paul's belt, this is what you are destined for. And in seeing the end, they come to their own conclusion that that's not the way to go. So don't go, Paul. But Paul, see, Paul, constrained by the Spirit, he sees not only the end, but he sees the path. And even more than that, he knows that at times, it is God's will for us to suffer. And Paul is ready. He's ready to suffer. He's ready even to die. See, Paul's not crazy. He's not choosing to suffer for suffering's sake. He's choosing to follow Christ. And if that involves suffering, then so be it. Oswald Chambers said, to choose to suffer means there is something wrong. We would acknowledge that. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a different thing. No healthy saint chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether or not that means suffering or not. And that's the key that I want us to be reminded of this morning. Paul chooses God's will. Jesus chose God's will. Paul isn't walking into the suffering that awaits him Blindly, he's doing it because he knows that his Savior suffered before him. His Savior suffered for him. And so Paul has made up his mind, or rather we would say the Lord has made up Paul's mind for him. As we come to this scene, one can't help but think of what Luke told us of Jesus in his Gospel way back in Luke 9.51. He speaks of Jesus as Jesus' mission there, and he says a phrase about Jesus. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was facing him there, and he set his face to Jerusalem. And indeed, the parallels with Paul will continue. Paul, like Christ, will be rejected by his own people. Paul, like Christ, will be unjustly accused and arrested without cause. Paul, like Christ, will hear the cries of the Jerusalem population saying angrily, away with him. And Paul goes. Because Paul is imitating his Savior. Paul is walking to the suffering because of the worth 
of Jesus. The worth of being identified with Jesus. Whatever the cost. Paul knows that God's number one priority in his life is not his own personal comfort, but God's glory. He will write to the Philippians once he gets to prison, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings. And so Paul will go where he is led by the Spirit to go. Agabus will be right. He will be arrested. He will be bound. He will suffer. And yet God will use that for the spread of the Gospel. The gospel demands a willingness to suffer. Of course, we live in a world of suffering. This could not have an easier application to our lives. And This is not a text, and we don't have the time to formulate this elaborate theology of suffering, but I want to give us a couple tangible takeaways from what Paul shows us here, and from that truth that the gospel demands a willingness to suffer. The first thing is, don't be surprised if you suffer. We can think about suffering broadly, just in terms of our lives and the brokenness of the world we live in. We can think about suffering specifically as sharing the gospel, as that's what Paul was doing. He was all about Christ in a hostile world. But don't be surprised. This is what Peter told the church in 1 Peter 4.12. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange is happening to you. This, at times, is the will of God for the church to suffer. 1 Peter 1.21 to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. One more passage, Colossians 1.24. I rejoice in my sufferings, Paul says, for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul's not saying there that, Paul, that, that Jesus' suffering lacked any value. What Paul is saying is that we are, in a sense, as the church, as we suffer, we are a continuing incarnation of suffering, displaying the Lord Jesus and imitating Him in that way. That's how closely Jesus identifies with us, with his body. That's why Jesus told Paul when he was Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul was hauling Christians around. And so we so often pray for God to help us avoid suffering at all costs. When at times, suffering is exactly what we need. So don't be surprised. That's the first thing. Secondly, under this first point, don't despair. Don't despair 
in your suffering. And, and, and let me give you just a few things under this. One is suffering is not meaningless. Far from a waste, it's God's greenhouse of growth. It's why the old Puritan preacher Samuel Rutherford is quoted as saying, grace grows best in winter. Jesus himself knew suffering wasn't meaningless. The book of Hebrews, Hebrews 5.8 says of Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. There's a great quote from Dan McCartney who's written on this, and he said, Christ learned humanhood from suffering, and therefore we learn Christhood from our suffering so that we can grow into Christ's likeness through it. So your suffering is not meaningless. God is working. He's working on you. He's working for His glory. So don't despair. But don't despair either because he himself is a man of sorrows. That's what the prophet Isaiah said. He knows suffering not by intellectual knowledge, but by personal experience. Jesus knows pain, abandonment, rejection, and loss deeper than you will ever know. So don't despair. Because Jesus himself, who is with you, is a man of sorrows. And then finally, don't despair because... Glory awaits. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, We do not lose heart, Paul says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight and glory beyond all comparison. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so friends, brothers and sisters, we, we follow Jesus into the garden. We follow Jesus to our knees and we pray, Lord, if there be any way to take this from me, please, I don't want to suffer unnecessarily. But, not my will be done, but your will be done. And so sometimes the Lord calls us to follow Jesus to the cross. But the thing about it is, anyone who follows Jesus to the cross follows Him in resurrection. Follows Him in glory. So don't despair because glory awaits. The Gospel demands a willingness to suffer. I couldn't help but think about the 262 Assyrian Christians. I think the number's larger now who are held captive as we speak by ISIS, whose fate is probably sealed for them. Whether they're willing or not, they are going to suffer. We are blessed here to not fear for our lives as as they do, but maybe one day we will. Maybe one day our children will. But for now, I think Paul reminds us to to not work so hard at avoiding suffering at all costs, but praying, Thy will be done. Give me grace for whatever that will is. That's the first thing I want us to see from this passage and this example of Paul. The second thing is this, and this is much shorter. 
The gospel compels us to accommodate the weak. The gospel compels us to accommodate the weak. There was a song in the 90s by a band which I don't recommend, but a band called Meatloaf, that infamously sang, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. And no one exactly knew what that was. And it was never really explained really well what that was, but the song nevertheless climbed the charts. And Paul, by his actions, once he gets in Jerusalem, before he gets arrested, he asks us and he challenges us with the question, to what lengths would you go to for the Gospel? What is your that? I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel. We read this story and one might think that Paul would not and should not do what he is doing once he gets to Jerusalem. You see, as Paul returns from this lengthy trip around the known world at the time, there is a level of concern about what he has been up to and the success that he has experienced, specifically among the Gentiles, specifically among those who aren't Jews. For ages, for centuries, there has been this tension between Jew and Gentile. For generations upon generations, Yahweh has been the God of Israel. He has revealed Himself to them. He has dwelt specifically with them. They were His people, and He was their God. And now that identity and that history is being threatened. Through Jesus, there's no longer Jew and Gentile, slave nor free, but all are one in Him. And so when Paul returns after a successful ministry to non-Jews, the Jews are concerned about his Jewishness. And the elders gather him together and they ask him to do something that really is unnecessary to the gospel, isn't it? They essentially ask him to display his Jewishness by participating in this Nazarite vow. Now, we don't have time to go into the Nazarites, but the Nazarites were the most dedicated Jews of the Old Testament. Some were lifelong Nazarites. Others just took Nazarite vows for a time. Numbers 6, verses 1-21, through 21, talks about the Nazarite vow. And it involved abstaining from certain food, abstaining from wine, not getting your hair cut, among other things. And as Paul comes back into Jerusalem, apparently four guys in the church there are involved in a Nazarite vow. They're in the process of taking this vow and all that it entailed. And so the elders ask him that is Paul, to show his solidarity with them by helping them. Helping them pay their expenses. There would be animals and grain and offerings that they would need to give during this time. He would go to the priests with them as they went through their purification rites. He would participate in those purification rites. And in doing this, he would demonstrate that he is a law-abiding Jew. Now, how does that rub you, those of you who know the Gospel? We, we want to say, no, Paul, don't do that. You don't need to do all that stuff. 
All you need is Jesus. Why would you do this? I think there's really a simple answer to why Paul does this. It's love. It's love. We could say it's love for the authority of the church and for the elders who asked him to do this. Even Paul himself is submitting to the leadership. We could say it was love for the Jews because it showed them that he understood them. It showed them that he knew their passion for the customs of old and it showed them that he was willing to be patient with them. To take the time for these things to lose their luster. Love. See, love for others, it takes away of a lot of that. I would do anything for love, but not that. And frankly, for us Reformed folk, there's, an, there's another way to think about this. Because love takes away a lot of our rights as well. Just because you are entitled to something doesn't mean it's helpful. Doesn't mean it's beneficial. Doesn't mean it's loving. You see, the Gospel calls us to accommodate the weak to those who don't yet fully understand, to stoop, to humble ourselves, to do what it takes to love them in order that they might understand. So the challenge comes to me, the challenge comes to you. What hoops might you need to jump through to reach your neighbor, to reach your coworker? Is it something pointless? So what? Is it loving? We need only look to the Lord Jesus. Philippians 2, it's a familiar passage. Have this mind in, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing. Taking the form of, the, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became all things for us. He became flesh for us because of his love for us. Jesus suffered, and Paul knew the suffering of Jesus, and so he was willing to suffer Jesus condescended in love, and Paul knew the condescending love of Jesus, and so he was willing to love at whatever cost. And that same spirit that drove Paul, that raised Jesus, is ours. May we suffer well. May we love well to the glory of his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word Father, these truths are a challenge to our own hearts. None of us want to experience suffering. And yet that is the path that you have called some of us to walk even today. It's a path that you have called some of us to walk soon, in the future. Father, may we be willing for the sake of the Gospel for the sake of Christ, to pray, Thy will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Oh, Father, give us the grace to love, to trust. Give us the faith to see your purposes, or at least a glimpse of your purposes in it all. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.